Well, good morning. Good morning to you all. Happy Lord's Day. It is uh, good to be with you together, uh, not in the house of the Lord, but as the house of the Lord, so to speak. Well, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, we are going to pick up where we left off last week, Matthew chapter 10. And we are actually going to finish Matthew chapter 10 today, and then uh, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 11 next week. So no, uh, no change of plans there, no surprises, Matthew chapter 11. Well, we are, as I said, picking up this morning where we left off last week, looking at the whoever sayings of Jesus regarding discipleship. Um, if you recall last week or if you tuned in online, uh, you remember that Jesus gives a set of whoever sayings in this portion of Matthew chapter 10. He's describing what a disciple must be and do. Last week, he said that whoever loves their family more than him is not worthy of him. And whoever is unwilling to take up their cross and follow him is unworthy of him as well. We start to get the idea, looking at these, these sayings of Jesus here, that discipleship is costly. It is something that is demanding, that requires something of us. And the question that we are being confronted with in this portion of Matthew chapter 10 is, is Jesus worth that cost? Is he worth more than my family? Is he worth taking up my cross and this morning, we will look at two more of Jesus's whoever sayings as he continues to prepare the 12 apostles for the work that is ahead of them, and as he describes to us the reality of being his disciples. Uh, let's read our text starting in verse 39 this morning, down to verse, 11, uh, verse 1 of chapter 11. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is living, that it is active, that it is not a dead word to us, but that by your Spirit it is applied to us. That by your Spirit we can understand it, by your Spirit we can approve it and accept it and do it. Lord, what a, what a state we would be in without your scriptures, wondering for ourselves what we should be and do who you are and how to know you. And yet you have given us clear answers in your word, Lord, a light for our path and a lamp unto our feet. And Lord, that is so true as we come to this portion of Matthew's gospel. And we pray for your help, not only in understanding what Jesus is saying, but Lord, in, in considering it, in weighing it, in taking it seriously that we might obey it from a right heart. Lord, I pray for your help, that you would um, guard my tongue, and that I would only proclaim that which is pleasing to you and which agrees with your word. We ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we come to this last section of Matthew chapter 10, we have two whoever sayings here. First, whoever would be Jesus' disciple, one must lose their life for Christ's sake. Verse 39. 
And two, whoever would be Jesus' disciple must receive Christ's messengers, verse 40 through 42. Of course, as we come to verse 39, we encounter the third of Jesus' whoever statements. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And just like the, the, the verse about taking up our cross, Jesus' teaching here in verse 39 appears several times throughout all the Gospels. It is an important teaching of Christ. Usually, though, it's interesting, uh, Jesus will, will say, whoever uh, loses their life will save it, which is interesting. But here he uses the word find. Whoever finds their life will lose it, loses it, will find it. He's really contrasting two approaches to life that people take, and only one of these two approaches is fitting for the disciple. The first approach Jesus mentions in verse 39 is this, whoever finds his life will lose it. The first approach people take is to try to find their life, Jesus says. And of course, this is a a picture, right, of searching for something, of seeking something of value, of discovering the thing you're looking for. You've probably experienced this kind of thing, right? You, maybe you're, you're looking for a new house to, to live in or a new car to buy and you're looking and you're looking and you just, that's the one, right? That's the one. It was like that for me with my wife, right? That's the one. She's, she's the one. I found her. Seeking something of value, discovering what you're looking for, really to find here is, as Calvin says, to possess it or to have it in safekeeping, right? You found it. You're not looking anymore. And of course, this is a picture of uh, of, of, you know, doing this with our life, Jesus says. But what does that mean when we're talking about life? It's easy when we talk about possessions, but what does it mean to find our life? Well, this describes those who are content, who are satisfied with this life, who have found what they're looking for in life on this earth, right? Who have found ultimate fulfillment in this life and this world. They are looking for their life here, and as far as they know, they have found it. This isn't just a cultural thing in Jesus' day, thousands of years ago. This is the natural desire of humanity. We come out of the womb with this inclination, right? Uh, With with the the, the desire and the plan to build the best life that we can for ourselves here and now before we die because this is all that really matters, right? Might as well make it count. And maybe that's how you've approached life before, right? I want to live the best life I can here, have the best house, the best family, the best job, the best whatever it is, right? According to your, your, your preferences. That's been the goal of many people throughout history. Henry David Thoreau, the famous author, says, live the life you've always dreamed. Steve Jobs says, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. In other words, live the life you want to live here and now. Roy T. Bennett, a politician, says, if you want to be happy, don't dwell in the past. Don't worry about the future. Focus on living fully in the present, right? Here and now is all that matters. Eleanor Roosevelt, the purpose of life, after all, is to live it to taste experience to the utmost, to reach out eagerly and without fear for newer and richer experience. Right? The purpose of life, in other words, is to get all that you can on this earth to experience all the things you want. The person who finds their life is the person who clings to their personal picture of what life should be like, right, according to, to them. The person who believes that a good life here on earth is really the whole purpose of being alive. That's what it means to find your life. Now, is there anything wrong with wanting a good life? No, right? That's not a sinful thing in and of itself. The problem is, is that our greatest desire is that the main thing we're looking for and living for 
That's what Jesus is talking about here, right? Uh, he, he points out a sobering reality about such an approach to life. He says, whoever finds their life, whoever lives only for the here and now, will lose it. Whoever finds their life will lose it. If you're working for this world and living for this life as your ultimate purpose, you will lose everything. You will lose everything. Jesus tells a parable to this effect in Luke chapter 12. Turn there with me. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 16. Luke chapter 12. Starting in verse 16, Jesus tells uh, the crowds around him a parable. He says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now we may, we may read this and go, Well, I am definitely not rich like that guy, so this does not apply to me. But, but it does, right? It does. Both rich or poor are working for something. They're finding their fulfillment in something. Right? It doesn't matter how much you actually have. The principle Jesus lays out here applies to all of us. And there's two realities that we draw out of this parable that are very relevant to verse 39. First, the world and the things in it are passing away. Right? Jesus says those who find their life will lose it. One, because the things in this world, life in it, is passing away. You could be the richest man in the world, right? But you will eventually die. And all those possessions and status and legacy, it's not coming with you, right? You could be middle class. You could be poor. The same is true. You lose all of it, whether rich or poor. It passes away. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, describes the vanity, the pointlessness of living for this world only. He says, as, as man comes from his mother, mother's womb, he will go again. Naked as he came, and will take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Ultimately, you don't come out of this life ahead when it comes to possessions. Right? You come in with nothing, you leave with nothing. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 31, that the present form of this world is passing away and it is. That's been true ever since the fall. Even while we're still alive, our possessions decay, right? Uh, we have to fix our cars. We have to paint our houses. Our bank accounts eventually drain down. Our bodies break down and don't work like they used to. Friend, how do you approach life in this world? How do you approach life in this world? Do you live and view life as, this, as if this were the end? As if this were all that's worth living for? What is your main purpose for life here? Is it to build the best life you can so you can enjoy it before you die? Are you finding your life here and, and clinging to it? Because if so, you will lose everything. You will lose everything. It's like building a sandcastle, right? That the seas of time and death will dissolve right out of your hand. 
The second reality that Jesus brings out of this parable is even more serious. If you find your life, Jesus says, you will lose it in the sense that your soul will be lost too. Not just your possessions, but your soul. The rich man's soul was required of him. God didn't really care about his possessions. What mattered when death came was his soul. And he was found wanting on his last day. And to find your ultimate life and fulfillment here really means one thing. You are ignoring the reality of eternity. If this is all that matters, you're not thinking about what is ahead of you. You're not thinking about eternity. And if you're ignoring the reality of eternity, then you are ignoring your need for Christ to save you. And if you're ignoring your need for Christ to save you, you will stand before the judgment of God alone, without a representative, without a mediator, with only your sins to bring before Him, and you will perish. You will lose your life, eternally speaking, if you have found it in this world. Because if this is all that matters, why do you need Christ? Why do you need Christ? You may gain much in this life, but you will lose it all when you die. And, and, and think back where we've been in chapter 10 for a minute. Right? The disciples have been told in very clear terms the difficult things they are going to experience in their service to Christ. The temptation to avoid this suffering, the temptation to live a comfortable life, collecting taxes or fishing or whatever they were doing before, that might have been a real temptation for them. And in fact, after Jesus dies, what do we see them doing? Going back to fishing, right? But Jesus reminds them, whatever gain they think they might have here and now, it will, uh, it will not last. It will be gone. Why turn back to it if it ultimately will not last? But Jesus doesn't leave his disciples and he doesn't leave us in a hopeless situation, but he actually flips the teaching around here in the second part of 39 to reveal what truly does lead to eternal life. And it's counterintuitive. He says, whoever loses their life for Christ's sake will find it. So if finding our life means to treat this life as ultimate, then to lose one's life means letting go of this world and the things that are in it. Now, that doesn't mean we withdraw from life. It doesn't mean we don't care about life. It doesn't mean uh, that we just try to rise above life, you know, and live in this enlightened state where nothing bothers us. That is not what it means to lose our life. That's not it at all. It's to realize this is not the end, to, to not cling tightly to life in this world because we know there's something greater. To, to lose our life really means to do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Verses 14 through 15, he says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I'll read that last part again. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. To lose our lives doesn't mean to stop living. It means to stop living for ourselves. It means to stop living for the things of this world and to start living for Christ. To put ourselves under His authority in the way that we live. To put ourselves under His kingship, His power, His commands according to His will. It is to live primarily for Him 
for His glory, for His pleasure. It is to give up any claims to our own lives here and now to live how we want to live it and to submit to Him as our Lord and our King. That's what it means to lose our lives. Really, this is a major aspect of repentance, right? When we first become Christians, what are we doing? We are turning away from living for ourselves. We are turning away from trying to be the gods of our own world and our own life. And we are turning to God in faith and repentance, saying, I don't want to live that way anymore, Lord. I want to live in obedience to you. My life is now yours. In the words of Paul, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Repentance is costly. It is not easy. It is not fun. But the one who forsakes his life is part of repentance, costly as that may be, right? For our own personal pursuits and those things we have to give up. Jesus tells us we will actually find far more abundant and everlasting life. That by losing our life, we actually gain far more. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not lose their life, but have eternal life. That's what we get. We might lose something here and now, but what do we gain in eternity? And in fact, Christ tells his disciples, this is the gift he's come to bring them in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, the thief comes in to steal and destroy. I came that they, meaning his sheep, may have life, but not just there. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say may have life, period, and may have it abundantly. Think about really our existence in this world. It's so small. It is so small. We live, we work, we, we, we may raise a family, we do some things, and then we die. It happens like that. And Christ says, yeah, that's, that's small. Let me give you eternal life that never ends. The joy in that life never decreases. It only increases over time. Your knowledge of me and relationship of me, Jesus says, only grows throughout eternity. That's far better to gain than whatever we can have in this life. And, and what does Jesus say we must do in response to this offer of abundant eternal life? We must lose our lives. We must turn away from it in faith and repentance to the Lord of life. And there we will find this abundant life in Him. It's in Him. Friend, the life that Jesus offers you is not a slight upgrade from the life you can have in this world. It's not like you're driving a Honda Accord here and then Jesus says you can have a Corvette in the next life. It's not like that at all. It is unimaginably more full, unimaginably more abundant, ever, everlasting and eternal and good. And, and brothers and sisters, we lose sight of that and we fall into so many troubles and problems and pitfalls here because we're chasing things that ultimately lead to our destruction when we prioritize them above Him. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let me give you true, everlasting life that is found in me. That's what he says. He is the fountain of that. All these other things are, in the words of Jeremiah, empty cisterns that will not stay filled. Jesus is the fountain of eternal life. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 3 that if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, right? Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are 
above, not on things on the earth. Paul's point there isn't don't think about life in this world because we do want to be good stewards. We do want to live righteously. We do want to honor the Lord in how we live. What is it we are fixing our hope and our mind on? What occupies our thoughts, though? Because Paul says you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. I love that. Christ, who is our life. So good. So if we lose our life here, we will find it in Christ. Glorious and eternal. And and not only that, right? But in losing our life, we gain far much more in Christ, in our new life. Ephesians 1.3 says that we have received not just a couple, not just most, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every single one is ours. It's like we can't even fathom that, right? We can't even fathom for that, and we settle for so much less here and now. Jesus himself teaches us in Matthew 19, 29, that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, in other words, things here, for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Whatever we lose here, we are repaid back so much more. So much more. And unlike the things of this world, this heavenly inheritance Christ has given us, this new life in Him will never pass away. It never corrupts. It never decays. Peter, uh, who was there with Jesus, hearing Him say this, in Matthew chapter 10, describes these things as imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. God is keeping them safe for us in His very presence. And brothers and sisters, our greatest and most abundant life was never meant to be found here. It's true even in the Garden of Eden. Adam wasn't going to just stay in the garden just taking care of trees, right? If he had obeyed God and had not eaten from that tree, if he had passed that test of temptation, things would have been even better. And believe it or not, what we have in Christ is even better than what Adam could have gotten on his best day. Our best life as Christians is not now. It's not here. But Jesus adds an important qualifier in verse 39. He says, we must lose our lives for his sake. For his sake. That's important. Our repentance and sacrifice in this life cannot be for any other reason than for him. Than for his sake. There's many religions that practice self-denial and and fasting and living in poverty. There's many other religions that practice giving things up in this life, possessions or whatnot. There's many people who refrain from things for selfish motives, but none of those fall under this category of for my sake. We must lose our lives for His sake, for His glory, to know Him more, to honor Him as our King. And Jesus' words here go against the wisdom of the world, don't they? Our world will tell us, eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow, have as many experiences as you can, because tomorrow you're going to die. But Jesus proclaims a different message. If you find your life, you will lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you will find it, and so much more. So much more. What a generous God we have who asks so little of us in return for so much, so much. Christ has one more whoever saying for us here. As we come to the end of Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 through 42. Whoever would be his disciple must receive his messengers. 
Now, this thing's a little different than the other ones, right? The focus shifts a little bit. The, the previous three have been about what a disciple must be and do. Uh, but here, Jesus' focus shifts towards the response that the hearers of the apostles must have. But there's still a, a connection to discipleship here as well, as we'll see in a minute. And Jesus says in verse 40, Whoever receives you receives me. He's speaking to the apostles, of course. Whoever receives the apostles receives Christ. And this word receives carries with it this, this uh, idea of hospitality, right? Uh, remember, the, the apostles are going to go from town to town and village to village and house to house. They're going to tell people about Jesus. And there will be some people who receive them, who welcome them, who say, yes, we're glad you're here. Come in, have a meal, tell us more. There's that sense of hospitality, of welcome in this word receive. Now, we've, again, heard about this in chapter 10, verse 12. And Jesus says that those who uh, bring in the apostles and show hospitality and welcome them are, in effect, receiving him. Now remember, what does the word apostle mean? It, it really describes somebody who is sent out by another, somebody who goes out with a message. The apostles are heralds of King Jesus. Paul would describe the apostolic ministry as, as being ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Right? There's that picture of being an ambassador. So think, think for a minute, right, in our own, our own day, what a country's response to an ambassador would mean. Last year, a week before Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, they expelled the number two ranking U.S. diplomat in Russia. Right? Seven days before they invaded Ukraine, they kicked out uh, one of the highest ranking U.S. diplomats. What message do you think that sent? It did not send a message of, yeah, we love the United States. We, we want more diplomats from the U.S. here in Russia. That's not the message it sent at all. Now, on the flip side, inviting an ambassador in to talk with them implies some willingness to receive them, to talk, to work together. And that's between two countries. What about a common person's response to a king's messenger? Right? That's a bit more personal, isn't it? For, for a person to reject a king's messenger would be identical to rejecting the king himself. Right? To reject the king's representative is to reject the king. But to receive a king's messenger would be Identical to receiving and welcoming the king. So to welcome the apostles, Jesus says, is really to welcome and receive the gospel and the king proclaimed in the gospel. Uh, the apostles are going to travel throughout Judea here in between uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12. They will be rejected by some. They will be received by others. And this is even more true when they begin their post-ascension ministry, spreading the gospel throughout Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But in order for somebody to join the early church, in order for someone to be a disciple of Jesus, what would their response to the apostles have to be? They would have to receive the apostles and agree with the apostles' message. Right? They would have to receive that testimony of who Jesus is and what he did. So even here, discipleship is uh, center stage. Now, of course, we live 2,000 years later. The apostles do not walk the earth anymore, but their words are still here for us. Right? In the New Testament, we have many writings of the apostles. Inspired by the Spirit of Christ, that still speak today. And so even though they may not come into our homes, we have their testimony, we have their message in Scripture for us. And the question that we need to ask is, do we receive the apostles in our response to their writings? 
do we receive the apostles in response to their writings? Peter makes it very clear in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2, that the writings of the apostles are really the words of Jesus. He says that we should remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. You catch what Peter's saying there. He's saying when we read Paul or Peter or John or James or Matthew, or really any of the New Testament writers, Jesus is speaking through them. Paul's words really are Jesus' words. Peter's words really are Jesus' words. He is giving that instruction and those commands through them. Now, I have no major issue with red-letter Bibles. I don't think there's a fundamental problem with red-letter Bibles. Uh, If you have a red-letter Bible, that's great. I think I have one floating around myself. But they do have the potential to create a, a misguided mindset in which the words that Jesus said during his earthly ministry end up uh, taking priority over what the apostles write in Scripture. Right? Um, that is challenging. And given what we just heard from Peter, it is wrong. We should not elevate the words of Jesus in the four Gospels above the writing of the apostles. They're all the words of Christ. Really, what we're seeing here in verse 40 as well is that Jesus' words delivered through his apostles, even during their preaching. Those are just as weighty as if he were speaking himself. Now, you can actually see the fruit of this in many modern conversations about what the Bible teaches on certain issues. Um, Take homosexuality, for example. Um, It's often remarked in that, that conversation that, well, Jesus never said anything about marriage and sexuality, right? Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. He never said that was a sin. Therefore, Christians can and should condone LGBTQ plus identity and lifestyle because Jesus never talked about it. Well, and and Jesus, during his 33 years on the earth, in the Gospels, did not spend time talking about that explicitly, so we know. But the Apostle Paul talks about it very clearly and several times. And so through Paul, Jesus does actually say a lot about homosexuality. Or take the role of women in ministry, right? This is another big discussion. Um, it's often remarked Jesus gave the message of the resurrection to women, right? They were the first ones to see him. They brought it to the uh, rest of the apostles. Therefore, women can be preachers to the church, uh, and they can even be elders, right? That's a line of thinking that exists today, right? Because Jesus in the Gospels did X, Y, Z or said X, Y, Z. But again, the apostles Peter and Paul are both very clear that only qualified men are to be ordained to the office of an overseer, an elder. And so through his apostles, Jesus does speak clearly. Just because the words aren't in red doesn't mean they're not his words. So to receive and accept the apostles through their writing is to receive and accept Jesus. But to reject their writing, to reject what they say in favor of what Jesus says in the Gospels is to fundamentally reject Christ. That's what Jesus is telling us here. So we can't just receive the four Gospels and then treat everything else in the New Testament like Apocrypha. Like, well, it's just people's opinions. You know, it's just Paul's opinion. It's just Peter's opinion. No, we must receive it all equally. We must receive the Apostles through believing and obeying their writings all these years later. And the stakes for receiving the Apostles are high. What does Jesus say next? Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Not only do you receive or reject Christ through your response to the apostles, but as Jesus says, whoever receives him receives 
the Father. So if you're not receiving the apostles and you're not receiving Christ, then you're not receiving the Father. How you're treating them really is how you're treating God. Really, at the end of the day, that's what Jesus is saying here. You cannot pick and choose what you want from Scripture. They're all the words of Jesus. Now you and I, of course, are not apostles with a capital A, um, but in a sense we are sent out with the message of the gospel. Right? We are messengers for Christ. That might be in our homes, raising children. We might be bringing that message into the workplace, or to our neighbor, or to a complete stranger, or to extended family. And chances are, if you've taken the brave step to evangelize somebody, to tell them about Jesus, then you've experienced rejection. Right? You've experienced what it is to have somebody say, I don't really want to hear that, or you keep that to yourself, or whatever it might be. But consider Jesus' words as an encouragement to you. If your conduct is godly, and you are uh, genuinely loving that person in your heart by wanting them to know Christ, if that's there when you're presenting the gospel, their rejection is not ultimately of you. It's of Christ. And if it's of Christ, then it's of God. But similarly, if you share the gospel with somebody and they receive it and say, yeah, I, I, I need Christ. Well, there's a sense in which they are partly accepting you, they are partly receiving you, but even more so, the Son and the Father. So anyone who would be a disciple of Christ, Jesus says, must receive his messengers, the apostles. They must agree with their witness. And as we look down to the, the last verses here, 41 and 42, we see that during this apostolic mission, there would be a blessing for those who received and welcomed the apostles. In verse 41, Jesus says that those who receive prophets, because they are prophets, will receive a prophet's reward. What does that mean, right? What does Jesus mean by that? The apostles aren't really prophets in the Old Testament sense. Um, they do speak on behalf of Jesus. So there is a similar principle here. But think about the prophets in the Old Testament for a second. Were they generally well-liked? No. Were they generally well-received by the people of, of Israel? No. Because their message was not very happy, right? It did have, there were many promises in it, but it was a, really by and large a call to repent. And... Uh, People did not receive that well. It's not a popular message. So the majority rejected the prophets that God sent to his people. But there were some who received the prophets and welcomed them. Uh, think of Elijah, who was received and welcomed by uh, the widow of Zarephath. And she fed him and gave him a place to stay. Or Elisha, who was welcomed by the Shunammite woman. Both of them welcomed the prophets and were blessed. God rewarded them, so to speak. A similar principle plays out in verse 41. Those who welcome a righteous person because they are righteous will likewise be rewarded and blessed. Why? Well, Jesus tells us the reason that we would accept a prophet or a righteous person must be because of who they are. We're receiving them because they are a prophet. They are a righteous person. As one commentator says, to welcome such a man is to agree with their basic position. So what Jesus is really saying here is that to receive a prophet or a righteous person because of who they are and what they represent, is in effect to align with them, to agree with them. That's a response of faith, I would say. And that response is pleasing to God, and he blesses it. So this is an encouragement to the hearers of the apostles. 
And Jesus teaches a similar thing in verse 42. He says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of water, because he's a disciple, I say to you truly, he will by no means lose his reward. The little ones are the disciples. That's, that's who Jesus is referring to. He's not referring to children. He's referring to the disciples. Now think about how he's, he's describing them. Little, small, insignificant. And yet those who would receive such insignificant people will be likewise blessed. Those who support the disciples and, and show them hospitality, even in something as simple as a cup of water, they will not lose their reward. Really what Jesus is saying there is they will be rewarded, right? He's, he's using a negative to say they will be rewarded. They will be blessed. God will notice those who care for the apostles and align with them. Because to do so is to align with Christ. And with that, verse 1 of chapter 11, Jesus leaves the disciples. He sends them off to go and preach in the villages and towns of Judea. The other Gospels describe their, their return from that mission. Matthew does not. But it turns out that it's not too tough. They come back from this preaching mission, talking about how they've been able to do wonderful things in the name of Christ. But this is not the final mission for the apostles. And then they will go through what we read in the book of Acts. Still doing wonderful things for Christ, but experiencing the very difficult persecution and suffering Jesus describes. Yet, these twelve, they eventually count the cost of discipleship. They consider Jesus' sayings. And even though they stumble at times, they remain faithful to their Lord. They take up their cross to follow Him. They love their own family more than Him. They lose their life in order to find it in Him. And we read about that in the book of Acts. And again, the fact that we have a Bible that we can read today is, is ultimately because these men counted the cost of discipleship. We've come to the end of Matthew chapter 10. We've seen the risk the danger, the cost of discipleship. We're now in a well-informed place to personally consider the question, what is discipleship to Christ worth to you? And we have to ask, am I willing to give up the things Jesus calls me to for his sake? Am I willing to follow him regardless of the difficult but good things he may call me to do? He is not only our Savior, but he is our Lord. He is our King. Questions to consider as we follow our Savior. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your honesty. Lord Jesus, you are honest with your disciples. You don't pull any punches, but you lay it out on the table for them and for us to read that being a disciple so many rich promises and blessings that go with it. But much risk, much cost. Lord, help us to count the cost. And Lord, to come on the other side of that equation, valuing you more. Lord, we pray that you would awaken our sluggish hearts. That you would loosen our grip on this life and this world. That our greatest desire, first and foremost, would be to follow and obey, and love, and know, and share, and proclaim you. Lord, wean us from those things that we hold so dear in this life. 
that will pass away. And Lord, where we may have found our life, where we have loved other things more than you, Lord, I ask that you would, you would reprioritize our, our life and our heart. And Lord, sometimes that means taking those things that we idolize out of our hands, removing them from us, that we might be left with you and nothing else. But Lord, in finding our life in you, we are so much more richly blessed. May we prize that, knowing you above all things. We ask for your help. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. A benediction for you as you go. 2 Corinthians 13.